the text continues, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. What beginning? The beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament, the beginning of the world? The answer is yes. The message has been consistent from whenever you want to choose to define beginning, but the message has been consistent that we are to love our brothers. And he says that. We should love one another. That's the gospel message. Even if you don't know what the gospel message is, and you had to guess, you would probably guess that we're supposed to love one another. This is the message of the gospel. We should love one another. Example from negativity. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And this is a reference to the Garden of Eden. Cain was the first child ever born, uh, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And his offering was not acceptable to the Lord. And that disappointed Cain and his jealousy Abel's offering, which was acceptable to the Lord. And the text continues, who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so John says, for those of us who hate our brothers, we are following under the lineage of Cain, who was a murderer. And so early in this passage, John is using some very bold and strident language to say that hate can be equivocated to, it can be likened to murderous thoughts and intentions and actions. Such is the power of hate. Do not be surprised, brothers, in verse uh, 13, if the world hates you. And so we know that as men and women of faith, as we live a life that is righteous and loving, that the, the world is not going to stand up and clap and recognize us. That if we please the Lord, the, the world may not appreciate that. That the, the, the better job we do pleasing the Lord and the, the better job we do loving our, our brothers and our neighbors, there's a possibility that that is going to run counter to the culture and the norms of the world. That we will not be applauded or, or thanked or rewarded for living a life that is found pleasing in the eyes of the Lord by the world. Two different systems running counter to each other. So pleasing to the Lord does not mean popular with the world. In fact, John is saying that it's guaranteed if we want to be popular. Uh, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. Uh, just a casual reading, and you miss the little um, point that he's trying to make here, the little play that he's having with his words. But take a look here, that we know that we have passed from death to life if we love our brothers. If we love our brothers, we have life. Love is being equated to life. Hang on to that for a moment. The one who does not love remains in death. The one who hates is actually, doesn't have life. They're going to die. And he's talking about an eternal type of death. So the one who is loving has life. The one who is hateful has death. He ramps it up. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And at this point, it's kind of like, John, holy cow, like, you're, you're crossing some lines here. Like, you're speaking very, very stridently, and you're linking eternal matters of life or death with whether or not we love or hate a brother. I'm kind of taking a little bit of umbrage with that. Maybe you just need to relax a little bit with that. The only problem is, he 
he's almost directly quoting exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Who is he like tell you? And he runs through three different ways to insult his brother. If you call him a chucklehead, you know, you might get in trouble with the law. If you call him a chucklehead squared, you might get in more trouble. And if you call him a really big, fat, ugly chucklehead, then you're in danger of hell. Uh, he uses different words. But the long story short is, is that if we express hate for a brother, then we can't have any love for God without any love for the people in our life either. The text takes a big turn here because so far John has been focusing on the fact that those who hate, hate life. Take a look at the turn that the text takes in the next verse. This is how we have come to know love. He, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. He's purposely stating something in such a way so that we see the comparison. He introduces it in verse uh, 6 and verse 14, and then he draws it out in verse 15. Please note what he's saying here, that those who hate, hate life. Those who love, offer their life up. The further point is, is that those who hate, who take life, lose it. They actually don't have eternal life. Those who love, who willingly lay down their lives for others, like Jesus did, actually have eternal life. And so he's, he's creating a very clear and compelling argument that the path of hate is a dangerous one. It ought not to be something that is in the church, and it ought not to be something that is in people's faith at all. He continues, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers. And so I kind of want to summarize what we've covered so far in the text with a big idea and two practical applications and an illustration by way of conclusion. The difference between hate and love is whether we sacrifice others or ourselves. That's what this text is saying, how it's summarized. The difference between hate and love is whether we sacrifice ourselves or others. So he sacrificed his brother so that no more pleasing sacrifices from him would make it to them. He imposed a sacrifice on somebody else, and it cost him his life. Joseph's brothers, who were filled with envy, sacrificed Joseph. They got rid of him. They imposed their will on Joseph as a sacrifice. And on and on and on throughout the biblical text, you can see that the clearest illustrations of hate are always between people who are either family members or love each other, and they impose a sacrifice on them. They take life from them. That is hateful. The gospel, Jesus' example, is something that was his, his own life, his own righteousness, his own holiness, his own standing with God. He gave it. So, the clearest understanding that you can get from this text love is whether or not we sacrifice ourselves or others. Love sacrifices oneself for others. Hate sacrifices others for themselves. This is what John means. One leads to eternal life, the other one leads to damnation, hell. Two practical examples. The first is found right in the text. It continues in verse 17. 
If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? So the first practical example of what John is saying could be hateful behavior, and again, he's talking to Christians here, is if we come across someone who is in need and we ignore that need. Now that is a theme that is found all throughout the New Testament in a number of different books. Um, I believe it's James that says, how can you tell someone to go on the way and to be well and to be well fed without actually providing help and food for them? And so a very practical, tangible example of a hateful course of action is coming across someone who is in need and deciding that you're not going to do anything about that need. Something that is very beautiful and exact opposite example of that, that my wife and I experienced in our home, is having brought our foster son into our life. We're going on week three, and things are going very, very well. He's a wonderful little guy. Uh, we are raising him up quietly and gently and patiently in what it means to be a man of faith. Chris had the audacity to try and have lunch yesterday without saying grace, and Katie said, hold hands and talk. So I'm grateful for Katie's presence, if for nothing else, than to keep my wife living the life of righteousness that she needs to. Because she's on a slippery slope. Um, something that is an example uh, opposite of hate, something that has been a loving thing that we've experienced in uh, bringing Katie into our lives, is that this kid doesn't need any Christian presence. Uh, whether it's coworkers that he's shown in the public school system, UPS workers that we've been meeting with regularly in the lot. Uh, if you walk into our house right now, we're just going to commune with UPS and we're going to talk about our personal life. So if you're interested in what makes Gospel Church actually tick, just walk in and ask about Kate and then we'll commune with UPS for crying out loud. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get caught with that again. So, but the community, especially a young man in need, uh, has said he's going to have national Christmas this year because nobody knows what his first five or six Christmases look like. But everyone's bound and determined to make this Christmas pretty magical. Don't, this might make us bad people, but these presents are going to be cold and maybe kind of spread throughout the year for other magical moments because we have multiple garbage bags of presents sitting up in our, multi, in, in, in our middle room because there's been such a loving response. There's a young man who has a need. It's obvious. He's learning disabled. They found out this week basically blind in his left eye, he has hearing disabilities in his left ear, he's got low muscle tone, there's a whole lot of things going on with him, and he's a very, very precious, happy young man, and he's going to have a magical Christmas, but he's obviously in need, right? And Chris and I have responded to that, and that's been wonderful, but so has the community. Um, don't give Katie a Christmas present. <laughs> Find some other way to be loving towards this guy. Uh, you know, because the, we, we've seen the opposite of hate when it comes to someone who's not in need. And this is fulfilling exactly what John is talking about. That is enormously within the life of this person. That we actually love them and we become bold. So specifically the question, if we want to have peace in our own consciousness, is what the text is going to be talking about next week. It means we need to be doing the right things because then we have memories of doing the right things that cleanse our conscience before the Lord and we can sleep at night. That's where we're supposed to be starting next week. And so the question for today is, what am I giving away? 
what belongs to me, stuff, that is actually being given away. Because that's what this first application of this text is. Hateful behavior is having the world's goods, seeing a brother in need, and closing his eyes to his need. How can God's love reside in him? And so if we choose to answer the question, what of my stuff am I giving away, we better not sleep well tonight. We need to think about that a little bit. Because loving behavior, behavior that marks men and women and has been given everything by Jesus, who took everything that he had and laid it down for our sake, we should be living a conforming way. And uh, River Church has shown since September when I started preaching about tithing that we have a heart to be found faithful. We've never had more consistent or better offerings than we have had since September. And what you're going to find as you are faithful regarding God's portion and receiving 10% of what the Lord has provided for you is that you now have capacity within your budget to be the kind of giver you're talking about today. This is above and beyond tight giving. You see a need, and you meet it. Because you're not worried about your stuff so much anymore because the Lord has provided for you and you've been faithful in a response towards tithing. And honestly, your stress level about money has gone down and you know that you can be more responsive to your money. Can you give raise and amen to that? That's normal when we live a life of faith. So we need to wrestle with the question. Directly from the text, the first application is to prove that we're not hateful, to prove that we are not expecting others to make a sacrifice for our benefit. A powerful question is, what am I actually giving away that belongs to me, of my stuff? Another way that we can sometimes walk down a path of hate especially towards those that are closest to us, that are in relationship with us, those that we love, is when we make, when we demand our rights rather than making respectful requests. Let me clarify that just a little bit. When we are in relationship with our kids and our spouses and our family members and our parents and we say things like, you always or you never, we are beginning Because when we say things like, you always and you never, we are now beginning to walk down a path where we need to see them make a sacrifice that benefits us. And we're a little puffed up about it because we're using our words in, in kind of a hurtful way, almost a hateful way. And so basic marriage counseling 101 is to get rid of that kind of language altogether, that we do not demand our rights. We don't. What we do is we make respectful requests. We explain what our need is, and then we ask for it politely. We sacrifice ourselves patiently in hopes, in faith that, that that inspires the response to meet the need that we have. Give you an example. I'm happy to say that this story has a happy ending, and that uh, for the most part, the lights in our house get turned off regularly and faithfully. And when they don't, the Lord has healed my heart so that I can actually have peace when I come home after work and I see lights on the house. It doesn't lead to a fight anymore. When we were first married, if my wife left the room and did not turn the light off, it would drive me wild. It would just irritate me. Uh, and so we would, it didn't start out as a fight, but it just struck me as disrespectful that, you know, she would have the audacity obviously, to leave a room and act in such a heinous and 
church or leads the way as you lead the light on after him. And so I began making, demanding my rights. Hey, that works great, by the way, guys. Wives love it. When you start a conversation like that, hey, don't laugh. I've been married 28 years. How long are you married, right? So I'm giving some good, solid counsel right now. Hey, oh my goodness, don't ever do that. <laughs> Remember the day that church tackled Josh when he was preaching? That was hilarious. Yeah, wasn't that around Christmas? Yeah, it was like a Christmas miracle, man. Stay for three weeks. Um, I would make disrespectful demands. Turn off the light. Turn off the light. Turn off the light. Turn off the light. In time and with maturity and, and, and learning how to be better at being a husband and being married, it turned more into a respectful request. And honestly, this is just a good example because who actually cares if the light is uh, let us on? It's, it's just kind of a control thing. But in time, because I learned how to be more respectful about that and have conversations about it, how to give the sense of peace between just a house that's quiet and dark and left and uh, whatever, that church has gotten way better at turning off the light in time. Um, and it's not something that even comes up anymore. It's not even a thing at all. It's a silly example. It's a goofy example. But when I use the phrase, you always and you never, you can probably fill in the blank. And what I'm saying is, to dealing with our stuff, which is what John's occupation is, how do we not be hateful with our stuff, we talked about that, how do we not be hateful with those that we love with our words, one specific example is to be more careful with our words, it's not that we don't have needs that need to be met, we do, absolutely, Jesus' life, demands the same time, uh, how your body is doing, how your mind is doing, these things all change with time, what used to be okay is not okay anymore, we need help. Whatever reason, there is a way to go about it that builds love rather than walking down the path of hate. And the accusatory statement says that as you always and you never, it begins to walk down a hateful and hurtful path, whereas clearly stating your need and asking for help is more of a loving action. I would like to wrap up our time today this morning by sharing a Christmas story with you that I feel is a powerful example of what it looks like when someone lays down what is rightfully theirs for somebody else. That this person could have taken justifiably a hateful course of action in response to something that happened to him, which is the epitome of a hateful action. And it's right from the heart of the Christmas story. Let me begin reading it to you and then show you something about this text that maybe we've overlooked or not seen. Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant. Hard stop. Now there's no hard stop in the text. And if you're familiar with the text, you know that the next four words are powerful. By the Holy Spirit. Joseph didn't know that. But what was known to him was that it was discovered before they came together that she was with another man's child. They're betrothed. That is a hateful action. Adultery. It's a hateful action. It's, it's one of the most hateful acts you can do. And this is what Joseph thought he had to deal with. He had asked Mary to marry him. They were committed to each other. And now she's carrying a child that is not hers. That is 
perfectly normal to do what he said she was going to do here in the text. Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Again, not known to anybody at that time, especially not Joseph. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her quietly. This guy could have publicly shamed his wife, and if they followed the letter of the Old Testament law, could have had her stoned to death for her hateful act. Joseph gave his reputation and decided that he was going to resolve this marriage quietly, without a fuss, without a fight. He let Mary go. She obviously was acting disrespectful and hateful. I don't want that to be a part of my life, but I don't have to be nasty about it. He resolved in his heart, the text says, because he was a righteous man, to sacrifice his honor, to sacrifice his reputation by not making a big deal out of it and letting Mary go quietly, not wanting to disgrace her publicly. Who is he speaking about right here? Mary's the one that's fucking another guy. Mary's the one that's carrying somebody else's baby. Joseph is the one who's carrying the dishonor. And yet his concern was her disgrace. He decided to divorce her secretly. Right from the heart of the Christian story is an example of what it looks like when someone behaves hatefully to both parents. Now a righteous man says, I will sacrifice myself to do this in a way But after she had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him God Saves, is what the name Jesus means. So Jesus is the Greek way of pronouncing his name. The Hebrew way of pronouncing his name is Yeshua. The English way of pronouncing his name is Joshua. It means he saves. You are to name your son God saves, or he saves, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord, Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him God saves. Jesus, uh, God saves, or Jesus. Please understand that in the eyes of the world, Joseph never got his honor back. That when he decided to put his betrothed wife away quietly, an angelic revelation came to him. Think about this guy, Joseph. Like, isn't that the kind of guy you want for your girl? Your girl gets in trouble, and her man, in a bad day, deals with her honorably. And then he gets an, he gets an angelic revelation saying, Joseph, there's something going on. There's no way you can anticipate that what is within your wife's womb is holy. So this was known to him, and he did not put Mary away quietly, but he brought her to his own home and married her, respecting her body until Jesus was born. But the shame and the honor, dishonor that he incurred by marrying Mary never went away. In the eyes of the public, he was 
about him, the guy that jumped the gun, picked the fruit early, or the one that was okay with raising someone else's son as his own. His sacrifice never went away. When he sacrificed his honor and his reputation, he never picked it up again, failing as the Lord. That is what one of the greatest examples that we have of love in the New Testament is the honorable way that Joseph dealt with what looking was physical situation. And of course we know that the message of the gospel is that Joseph was this model that he saved, or that Jesus is the one that models for us the path of salvation. Salvation is going to lead to a path that is going to be a life of more love and acceptance in God's sight. It may not be accepted or, or applauded by the world, and it's a life of continuing opportunity to sacrifice ourselves rather than expecting sacrifice of others. In exchange for, or rewarded by, as we So much so that we are never tempted to sin. That's how it works. Modeled by Joseph before Jesus was in the world. This morning, if you have been living for yourself and you've never sacrificed yourself, you've only been expecting sacrifice of others, that's sinful. That's sinful. And maybe this morning you've decided that you need to do less of that and more of the other. It, it begins with a simple conversation with God like this. Heavenly Father, your model in the New Testament is clear. As I lay my life down, as I sacrifice, as I give myself away, whatever I'm giving away is replaced by you. I want more of that. And I turn from the things that I know, that I grab for myself. We know that there is salvation to be found by making a decision to make a decision of faith that is modeled by Joseph hearing Jesus' words and, of course, modeled ultimately by Jesus on the cross. For those of us believing this morning, that's the case as well. For the rest of us, we're thinking about some practical application in that we have opportunities even today to not be hateful to those of us who are the closest to us, but rather love them by not ignoring our needs, not sacrificing our needs, but by making them known in ways that are polite and not demanding. Or possibly by considering what is the way that we can partner with someone who is obviously in need this evening and give away some of our stuff as we see in this text. Uh, I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing on the rest of our time together and the fellowship that we have. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the example that we find not only in John's letter to his readers in 1 John, but also the example that we see in the New Testament in the Christian story. Father, as we have acted hatefully towards those that we love, we ask your forgiveness. Father, would we begin to turn things around not by ignoring our needs, not by trying to uh, make martyrs of ourselves, but by being vulnerable and giving what we need to those that we love in hopes that you would begin to empower those who respect their requests and that the love would be 